0: My scripture reading this morning comes from Psalm 56. Be gracious to me, O God, for man tramples on me. All day long an attacker oppresses me. My enemies trample on me all day long, for many attack me proudly. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? All day long they injure my cause. All their thoughts are against me for evil. They stir up strife. They lurk. They watch my steps as they have waited for my life. For their crime will they escape? And wrath cast down the peoples, O God. You have kept count of my tossings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know, that God is for me. In God, whose word I praise. In the Lord, whose word I praise. In God I trust. I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? I must perform my vows to you, O God. I will render thanks, thank offerings to you. For you have delivered my soul from death. Yes, my feet from falling. That I may walk before God in the light of life. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Let's open up the word of prayer. Jesus, we rest content knowing that there is no scheme of man or ploy of the devil or circumstance that can wrest us from your hands you have been our Lord all our days and you will be the Lord until the end and to eternity so now as we take this brief moment in our hectic schedules and our daily lives may this be a moment of eternity may it be a moment where you speak to us as the voice of the living God for we are your people and we long to hear from you. We pray this in the name of our beautiful Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen, amen. When I was in college, my roommate and probably my best friend in college was from St. Louis, um, and as such, he was a die-hard St. Louis Cardinals fan. That's um, the Major League Baseball team in St. Louis. He, uh, I mean, he was. I could go on stories about uh, the length of his devotion to his baseball team. And it was a good time to be a Cards fan, because they won the World Series his freshman year. But one time I was in college, he invited me and a couple other college buddies to go to his home in St. Louis. I went to college in Chicago. So we drove south. We spent the weekend in St. Louis. And of course, we went to a St. Louis Cardinals game, because that's what you do in St. Louis. And one of the friends who was also from the college, a college buddy who came with us, was actually from Chicago. And so he was a Chicago Cubs fan. Now, if you're not familiar with, like, baseball rivalries, there is a long and storied rivalry between the Chicago Cubs and the St. Louis Cardinals. In fact, Wikipedia describes it as one of the most bitter rivalries in Major League Baseball and in all of North American professional sports. It's like, this is one of the most intense rivalries. Some people argue it goes back to the 1800s, like before there was a Major League Baseball, when Chicago and St. Louis had kind of amateur baseball teams. That it begins back then. So we go to the St. Louis game, and my friend from Chicago wants everyone to be very clear that he is not there to support the Cards, and so he wears a Cubs hat. Not because they were playing the Cubs, he just didn't want anyone to think that he was there to support the home team. And so while we're at the game, you know, I mean, St. Louis is the Midwest, so people are, on the whole, friendly and polite. Like, in New York City, you would have gotten knifed, but it's St. Louis. (laughs) So people are, like, making comments, but it's, like, mostly, you know, friendly banter, good-natured ribbing. Uh, But when the game was over, we are walking back to our car. It was about a mile uh, walk. We parked a ways away. And the further we got from the stadium, and the more inebriated the people were, The comments went from friendly ribbing to like, oh, that's personal, to, oh, this is getting a little scary, to people, I'm not kidding you, coming out of the bars and screaming profanities at us as we are walking down the street. It got to the point where we were fearing for our safety, and we were like, dude, take your hat off. And then he took his cub's hat off, finally. And, And in the end, we weren't, you know, it ended well, I'm here, I did not get mobbed, I didn't get attacked. But it's one of the few times in my life where I felt like there are people who don't like me and want to harm me. I I have enemies walking down the street right now. Now again, it's 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 a silly story because nothing happened and it turned out well. But when we look at our psalm this morning, a psalm by David, he had real enemies. And they weren't just people who wanted his team to lose. They were people who wanted David to die. And were scheming and plotting and investing time in their life in order to take David down. And and as David wrestles through this situation, we see how he finds hope and comfort, not in a favorable outcome in his struggles, but in the God who makes promises and keeps them. And in this season of Advent, again, as we look back to celebrate the birth of Jesus, but then look forward to Jesus' second Advent when he comes back, We will find ourselves in times, maybe not where we have physical enemies who want to harm us in that way, but times where we feel like there are pressures from outside that are trampling us and pressing us, or or pressures from inside that are trampling on us and pressing on us. And so David's prayer gives us deep spiritual and theological truths for our own lives as we wait for the return of Jesus together. So our outline for us this morning is our first point, enemies without... Second point, enemies within. Third point, thanks be to God. So first point, enemies without. Let me read verses 1 to 4 for us again. Be gracious to me, O God, for man tramples on me. All day long an attacker opposes me. My enemies trample on me all day long, for many attack me proudly. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? Now, one thing you may have noticed, we didn't actually read it, but the psalm gives us a little bit of background information about this psalm. Some psalms don't give us anything, it just has a psalm. But sometimes it tells us who the author is and a little bit of background. And so here it tells us this is a miktam, thats a kind of musical psalm, of David when the Philistines seized him in Gath what's interesting is that many people think this is likely the same circumstance as Psalm 34, which Jake preached on last week, which is uh, David flees Israel because the king of Israel is jealous, wants to kill him, and he flees to Philistia, the land of the Philistines. But When he arrives in Philistia, he remembers that he had made his name as a warrior by killing Philistines, namely Goliath, and then thousands and tens of thousands. And when he arrives in Philistia, he realizes, boy, this was probably not one of my better ideas. And when he's brought before the king of Gath, he acts insane. So that the king of Gath just says, this man's crazy, don't waste my time with him. And David escapes. So that may be the situation behind this, if it's not. At the very least, we know at this time in David's life. He was public enemy number one in Israel because Saul the king was insane with his, with his envy. And he was public enemy number one in Philistia, the other major nation of the time, because he had killed Goliath, their hero, and thousands of Philistines. And so he is a hunted man, and he uses military language in this complaint. And the gist of it is that in this struggle, he's being routed. I'm being trampled on. I'm being pummeled. I'm being oppressed all day long. Those who are against me They got all the power. The deck is stacked in their favor. They're holding all the cards. People can just have a field day on me without fear of consequence or retribution. It is not going well for David. Now, we can go wrong when we focus so much on the background of this psalm that we begin to think, well, I don't have any physical enemies who have it out for me. Therefore, this has nothing to say to me. Move on. But when it comes to the language of prayer, one of the beautiful things is that, you know, again, you may not have a, an enemy who wants to kill you. Hopefully, you don't have an enemy who wants to kill you. But we have pressures and things that afflict us from the outside that at times make it feel like we are being trampled on, impressed. Think of anxieties in a time maybe when you were in an anxious season in your life, and you had all these concerns, and it felt like you were just being trampled by the concerns for your family, or your friends, or your job, concerns for school, whatever it might be for you. All the big and little things that cause you to worry. Maybe there are times where you you had just difficult relationships in your life, Um, strained relationships with family, broken relationships with friends, relationships that ended poorly. And that can feel like it just burdens you, it weighs on you. Or just busyness. I mean, we're, in, we're such a busy people and we're in a busy season and you're running around hectically all day and you get to the end of the day and you collapse into bed and you feel like you've just ran a marathon or fought a war and you're honestly not sure who won. So when we have these pressures from the outside and this inbe- life of in-between between the first coming of Jesus and his second coming, where we have seasons where it feels like there is so much pressure coming from the outside, well, what do we do in those situations? David is our guide, because we look at what David does when he has enemies or pressures or struggles without. And the first thing that he does is David begins with God. Again, look how he begins his complaint. He says, be gracious to me, O God. Now, this may sound really obvious, but David's, David's praying. He's not just, like, ranting about his problems. He's not just having, like, a, an entry in his journal. This is all in prayer to God. And so David brings his problems, but he begins with bringing it all actively, intentionally before the Lord. And again, this may seem obvious, but I think a lot of times when we feel pressured from the outside, what we do instead is we live almost purely in this kind of horizontal, temporal, you know, what is within our own physical power, what is within our own ability to do. For instance, you have, you know, something difficult at work going on or at school or whatever, how often do you walk around with dialogues in your head? Oh, I should have said this, or I wish I had said this. Or if there's something that you don't know how to, you, there's some problem in your life you don't know how to solve, and you spend all your time brainstorming, okay, I could do this, I could do this, I could this. And you have this constant dialogue, and the one thing about it that's common is that it's completely horizontal. It's all about what you're going to do, or what they're going to do about what can be accomplished here and now. Or sometimes the way that we deal with those external pressures is we just kind of, self-medicate. Uh, we work ourselves to the point where we don't think about them anymore. We just give ourselves to our work. Or we give ourselves to food and drink or media entertainment. Again, completely horizontal, though. What would, I wonder what would happen in, in, in these situations uh, if we begin to train ourselves to bring it all before the Lord when those pressures are weighing us down, train our hearts and our minds to begin to actively bring it before the God who is there, who's listening, who wants us to come to him. And so that's what David does. He begins with God. God, be gracious to me. It's the first thing that David does, that we can take for our own times when we feel pressured and burdened from without. But second, David expresses his fear. It's interesting. David is both aware of his emotions, what's going on inside him, and he's honest about it before the Lord. Even to the point of saying, I'm afraid. Now, David may be the most courageous, stereotypically masculine figure in the whole Bible. I mean, the man, like, you know, when he's, like, talking to Saul about why he is a fit proponent to take on uh, Goliath, he's like, look, since my youth, I've been taking care of sheep. And when the lion came, I'd grab my staff and I'd kill him with my bare hands. And when the bear would come, I'd kill him with my bare hands. As a youth, you can imagine like the 12-year-olds in the Israelite village of Bethlehem all comparing their scars. And one's like, this is where I fell off the carriage. And one's like, oh, you see my knee. And then David's like, see these claw marks on my chest. And they're like, okay, David, you win. (laughs) Go somewhere else, you freak of nature. I mean, he was a skilled and experienced warrior. And yet, what does David say? He says, God, I'm afraid. There's something kind of humiliating when you're a grown adult with responsibilities to just be honest and say, yeah, I just don't know what to do right now. And I'm afraid. And even more, again, this is not David's private journal. He wrote, this is a, a prayer for the church. It's even more humbling to do that in front of other people, especially when you're the leader. Now, this is what David does. He's honest with his fear. And again, this may be humiliating to us, but I want you to know this is the sweetest sound in your Savior's ears when you come to Him with this kind of honest need. When you look through the Gospels, those who found a welcome from Jesus were the ones who came with this kind of honest awareness and acknowledgement of their need didn't matter if you were a corrupt tax collector or a woman caught in adultery or a poor fisherman. The ones who came to Jesus with a vulnerability were the ones who, in the end, saw the very face of God. He received a welcome from Jesus. So, David goes to God. David expresses his fear. But third, David focuses on the promise keeping God. And this is really important. And David, again, he's honest about his fear. And he has a lot to be afraid of, just like Oftentimes we have much that causes us worry, but he doesn't stay in those fears. He doesn't stay locked into those anxieties, but rather he begins with God and then he brings it back to God. This is what he says in verse three and four. When I'm afraid, I put my trust in you, in God whose word I praise. In God I trust, I shall not be afraid. And what's interesting is he doesn't just say God, he, he emphasizes in God's word, Because what gives David comfort is not just a belief in a generic God out there, but it's in the God who has revealed himself and who has made promises in his word. Most people believe in some kind of higher power. Statistically speaking, self-identified atheists are a very small percentage of the population, 3 to 4 percent. There's some debate among sociologists, but it's held steady for 3 to 4 percent for decades. Most people believe in some kind of God out there. Now, here's the thing, though. When all you believe in is some kind of God out there, well, in some ways, it's a lot easier because a, some kind of God out there will never ask you to lay down your life. But when you have those pressures on you, there's not a whole lot of comfort in some kind of God out there because some kind of God out there, first, there's no guarantee he's good if I'm just basing my belief of God off of my subjective feelings of, well, I think there's a divinity out there, what basis do you have to believe that he is not an evil demon? But secondly, even if some divine higher power is good, why would he care about you if we're just going off of our subjective feelings of what makes sense to us? But we don't believe in a kind of generic higher power. We believe in Yahweh, who's revealed himself in his scriptures, who's told us things about what he is like, and who has made promises, promises to you. If you're Jesus's, if you've given your life to him, and you're trusting in his blood to cover your sins, there are promises he has made to you. God has bound himself to you by sending his son to die for you. Some of these promises that Jesus himself has made is that he'll never leave us to the ends of the earth, to the ends of the ages, he'll never leave us. He's working for our good in every circumstance. It doesn't matter what's going on, what it looks like. Jesus is working for your good in the midst of that. He's always near. Do not be anxious, for the Lord is near. And the peace he brings passes all of our ability to comprehend it. It makes no sense. And of course, as we remember in Advent, Jesus has promised to come back and to make everything right, and to wipe away every tear. And so this is who David trusts in, the God who's made promises, who's revealed himself in his word. And it's interesting, David's trust as he ends this first complaint leads him to ask this very interesting rhetorical question. And this is how he ends his first complaint. In God I trust, I should not be afraid. And this is the question, what can flesh do to me? Now a rhetorical question means it's, it's as much as making a point as asking an actual question. David's not expecting his audience to answer him. He's making a point through it. And he does this throughout this psalm. He asks a couple rhetorical questions to try to draw out themes he's bringing out. So for instance, verse 7, he asks, For their crime, will they escape? And there he's referring to people who have betrayed him. And he's like, God, are, are they just going to get away with it? Is there justice in this universe? When verse eighty he says, Are they referring to his own tears? Are they not in your book? God, aren't you intimately aware of my own struggles and sorrows and sufferings? And then here he asks, what can flesh do to me? And he actually repeats it again in verse 11, what can man do to me? And here's the deal about this rhetorical question, y'all. Only if you're reading that from a God-centered perspective, from a vertical, uh, uh, eternal perspective, does that question make any sense, what can flesh do to me? You can imagine David, when he wrote this psalm, called some of his advisors in, or some of his mighty men, I guess, at the time. Guys, guys, wrote this great psalm. Listen to it. He's reading it to them. And the one guy in the back's like, David, I don't, I don't want to be that guy. Great psalm. Language is beautiful. It's moving. I love it. It's great. Technically speaking, flesh can do a lot, Okay. <laughs> People can do a lot of damage, David. I, don't, I mean, again, I don't want to be that guy stating the obvious. Again, how is this rhetorical question, what can flesh do to me, how is it anything other than just objectively stupid? Well, again, from a purely temporal, horizontal perspective, it doesn't make any sense. People can do a whole lot to you. If people have enough power, they can ruin your careers. They can take your house. They can take your family. and Ultimately, they can take your very life. But what's happened is that David has gone from this kind of horizontal, temporal perspective of what makes sense in a human perspective, and he's beginning to see things from God's perspective. So from God's perspective, what is the most a person can do to you? The most a person can do to you is make some things happen a little earlier. That's it. Because at the end of the day, you're going to, like, one day you'll be too old to work and your career will end. One day you will die and you'll lose your family and you'll lose your life. And so the most that people can do is make those inevitabilities happen a little earlier. Again, think of it from David's perspective. He's he's probably my age, 35, 36. He knows he could go out and die in battle the next day or he could live 35 more years and die in his bed. What is 35 years, though, in comparison to years that never end? that go on year after year after year. A million years go by, you haven't scratched eternity. And it's all years that are with his Redeemer and his Creator and his Savior. Yeah, what can flesh do compared to that? And so when enemies are without, when we feel oppressed or burdened by the cares and concerns in our lives or by the brokenness of the world, we turn to God. To our promise making and promise keeping God. And as we do so, it reorients our perspective again from the temporary, horizontal to the vertical and eternal perspective. So that's our first point enemies without. But the psalm keeps going, and this is our second point enemies within. Let me read verses 5 to 11 for us. All day long they injure my cause, all their thoughts are against me for evil. They stir up strife. They lurk. They watch my steps as they've waited for my life. For their crime will they escape. In wrath, cast down the peoples, O God. You have kept count of my tossings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know, that God is for me. In God, whose word I praise. In the Lord, whose word I praise. In God I trust. I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? It's interesting because you expect after verse four the psalm to be done. David has gone from fear to trust. It's over. We're good. But David continues his complaint because it seems like he's not only again facing enemies who are outside, but he seems to be facing enemies from people who should have been his friends. Again, the language is used here, this is people who are on the inside of the community, people within the city who are watching his steps, who are lurking, who are trying to twist his words and prevent him from being able to lead. Well, these are people who should have been his allies. And now they're, they're turning on him and they're trying to destroy David. Now again, how do we translate this into our lives? Well, we can all understand why this is a whole nother level of hurt and pain. Having people dislike us who are outside of our close friends and family is difficult enough, right? Like, you know, having someone on Facebook or Twitter who doesn't know you call you names is not pleasant. But when someone who used to love you or you thought loved you betrays you, that breaks you. And that's why David continues his complaint. And I think we've all experienced betrayal in some way or other, and and I know this because of this. I listened to a New York Times podcast this week, and it was about the Taylor Swift phenomenon. Uh, and uh, really interesting, I didn't know this, but her um, era's tour has generated so much revenue in like the cities that uh, it's been held. And it's like billions of dollars of revenue that there have been world leaders who have called personally called up Taylor Swift asking her to bring her tour to their country so that they can make some money through the, through the tour. Uh, you may be aware of this. She's been called the Times Person of the Year. Uh, I mean, she's just, like, the only person in America right now who everyone, more or less, if you're a decent human being, appreciate her, right? I mean, there are some haters, but on the whole, like, no one else, like, she's more popular than anybody else. One of the few people who everyone kind of seems to like. And what's interesting, though, is Taylor Swift writes a lot about betrayal and the pain that comes from betrayal. And so the massive popularity that she has and the way that her music resonates with people, that tells me that we all... Experienced betrayal in some ways or other. People who've let you down. Bosses who let you down. Family who've become estranged, relationships that ended badly. We've all experienced this in, very wa- in various ways when it seems like, again, the enemy is someone who is within our, our circle of trust, within where we keep our guard up. And that hurts. But also, Sometimes the enemy within is not a person, but sometimes it's our own thoughts and the doubts and the insecurities that seem to take up space rent-free in our head. It goes like this, you know, if I'm a Christian, I know the blood of Christ is enough and there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I know that. But wow, is my heart good at condemning me. And my heart knows exactly where to stick the sword to do the most damage. So what do we do? Enemies without, enemies within. Well, again, David gives us a beautiful example, and then he goes to God. But he doesn't just reiterate the same thing he's already said. He gives us more reasons why, when there are enemies without and enemies within, why we should go to God. And the first reason is we turn to God because he knows what's going on. Look at verse 8. I think this is the most beautiful verse in all the Psalms. You have kept count of my tossings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? What's the image here? David, he, he can't sleep. He's so anxious. And not just that, he's bitter. He's been hurt. He's angry. He can't sleep at night. He's tossing back and forth, and God is there counting every one of his tossings. He's kept track of his tears. God has watched and waited with David through the dark night of the soul. It makes me think of, of, of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, the night he was betrayed. And Jesus knows what's coming, right? He knows he's about to be, to be crucified and in the mystery of mysteries be separated from God himself. And what does Jesus ask his disciples? He says, Pray with me, stay up with me, don't leave me alone. Of course, his disciples fail, right? They fall asleep. Here's the deal, y'all. Jesus never falls asleep. He wakes up with us. He watches with us. He counts your tossings. He keeps record of your tears. We worship a Jesus who is the king. He's the Lord. He's worthy of everything you have. And he demands your Allegiance. But he's also your friend who sits up with you and waits with you. He counts your tossings. We turn to God because he already knows, because he's there with us. Dangers within, dangers without. We turn to God because he, he knows what's going on. Secondly, though, we turn to God because he will bring justice. Again, this is that second rhetorical question. David asks in verse 7, for their crime, will they escape? I mean, he's, he's been betrayed by people who should have had his back. And he's like, God, is this just gonna, are they just gonna get away with it? Is there justice to be had in this world? And it's interesting because David then answers that yes, justice will be had. In verse 9, then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. David is, his hope is that yes, one day justice will be performed. Because David's hope is in the God who does what is right. Again, David turns to God because God is the one who will bring justice. When we're betrayed, and and, and if you haven't been betrayed yet, you will be one day, small ways and large ways. How do you keep from becoming just consumed with bitterness? How did David not become consumed with bitterness? I mean, the poor guy, he like, risked his life to save this ungrateful people. (laughs) And then they're not only turning on him, like some of them are working for Saul, telling him, hey, David's over here, go get him. And then David has to go be their king again. How is he not just consumed with bitterness? Well, I think the answer here is, again, David trusted in the justice of God. Not like Jonah, okay? Jonah trusted in the retribution he thought that the Ninevites deserved. David's trust is not in the retribution he thinks God will bring. His his trust is in God. That God is the judge of the universe, and therefore he will do what is right. When we're bitter, it's not helpful to dwell on the retribution we think the people who've hurt us deserve. That's not helpful. Our trust is in the God who, as the judge of the universe, we know will do what is right. What does that mean? It means when Jesus comes back, and he brings all things to conclusion. There won't be like any loose ends that weren't tied up. There won't be any kind of plot lines that are left unresolved. There won't be anyone in the back raising their hand saying, Jesus, not to be that guy, but what about this? You missed this. How are you going to make sense of this? It says when Jesus comes back, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Everyone will say, He has done what is right. And again, we don't know how that will work out. We don't know what that will look like. But that's our hope, that God will do what is right. And when that is our hope, we can lay aside our own need for retribution. And we can start doing what Jesus called us to do, which is love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you, who have it out for you, who betray you. Because we trust that the Lord of the universe will do what is right. So again, when enemies are within, we turn to God for we know what's going on. We turn to God because he will bring justice. And third and finally, we we turn to God for he is for us. Again, this is the second half of verse 9. This I know, that God is for me. This is really the heart, I think, of of David's trust. This is why David is able to move from fear and bitterness in the end to trust and thanksgiving. Because God has reminded him that God will will not only do what is right, but that God is genuinely for David. He's in his corner. He loves him. He counts his tossings. He's deeply concerned about David's welfare. Friend, do you know the love of God? This love of God the love of God who knows your sin maybe more than you do and yet has covered it with the blood of his own son. The one who, for his own glory, considered you worthy enough, or not worthy enough, you valuable enough, he was willing to send his son to die for you. Never let anyone contradict that. Never let anyone contradict the love of God and Jesus Christ for you. Don't even let your own thoughts contradict it. God is for you. The question is, what will you do in return? Because as David moves from fear to trust and from bitterness to trust, as God reminds him of who he is, David gives himself to the Lord in thanksgiving. And this is how he responds. So, again, our, our first point, enemies without. Second point, enemies within. Third point, thanks be to God. This is how David responds. Let me read the last two verses here. I must perform my vows to you, O God. I will render thank offerings to you, for you have delivered my soul from death. Yes, my feet from falling, that I may walk before God in the light of life. So, David says, I'm going to perform my vows to you. Now, just a quick question, what are those vows? And it doesn't tell us. But when you look at other psalms, it uses language like, I'll perform my vows in various places, and it's always in a corporate worship setting. And it seems to be referring to the kind of official worship of the temple, or the tabernacle. It was, and it was probably vows to offer sacrifices of praise. And so what David is saying is, is, is in response to who God has revealed himself to be, that God is for him. Oh, what news? It's like, I'm going to respond with it worship, and thanksgiving. That's what David is saying here. Now, let's look at what David doesn't say to God revealing himself to him, to God delivering him, because God does deliver him in this instance. He doesn't say, Lord, because you have delivered me, I will read your word every day for the next year. He doesn't say, Lord, because you have delivered me, I will do all these great deeds. I will give half my wealth to the church. You should have said that. It's not in here. I'll give up Netflix. I'll share the gospel with my neighbors. I will do so much for you, God. I'll change the world for you. In some ways, what he says almost sounds a little bit anticlimactic. He's like, God, you have saved me. Thank you. But in this, we see something incredibly profound about what God actually does want from his people. What he wants is our worship and our thanks. And I think this is communicated even more clearly in another psalm, in Psalm 50. And I want to go there real quick for a second because I think this communicates just really profoundly this truth of what God wants from us. Psalm 50 is actually something of a rebuke. God is rebuking Israel saying, look, I don't don't need you to do great works of religious devotion for me. I don't need you to do all these things. I don't need anything from you. And this is where he picks up in in, in chapter 50, verses 12 to 14. This is God speaking to Israel. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for all the world is mine, everything in it. Do I eat the meat of bulls? Do I drink the blood of goats? Make thankfulness your sacrifice to God. And keep the vows you have made to the most high. God doesn't need anything from you. What he wants is your thanksgiving and your worship. He wants your heart at the end of the day. But he wants wants you to be someone who's marked by thankfulness. Throughout your life, you're seeing the gifts that God has given, the things that none of us deserve. And your response is, God, thank you. You're so good to me. And here's the thing. To respond to God with thanksgiving and worship, you don't need money you don't need power, you don't need a fancy job, you don't need to be young and have energy. If you are alive and cognizant, you can offer to God thanks and praise. And the beautiful thing is that is what he wants. More than anything else, more than all our service, more than all our money, more than all of our, he wants our thanks and our praise. That's what God wants from you this Advent season. Whatever may be going on in your life in, in a room this size, like there's a lot of different stories happening. But I can tell you one thing God wants from you more than anything else is your thanksgiving and your worship. And even more than that, he wants your thanksgiving to be a sacrifice. Because honestly, sometimes giving thanks is a sacrifice. When there are times when it feels like I don't have much to give thanks for, And those times, it becomes our sacrifice, our costly offering to God. God, no matter what's going on, I am going to thank you. And I'm going to worship you no matter what. Because don't miss this. David's psalm does not end with a happily ever after. I mean, yes, God has delivered David in this instance, but it's like out of the frying pan into the fire, okay? David is still a hunted man. He is still public enemy number one in Israel and in Philistia. And yet David gives thanks. That's what it means to offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving, a costly offering that God finds truly pleasing. So brothers and sisters, when there are enemies without, when there are pressures that are weighing down on you and and trampling on you, give thanks because God is your trust and because he has made promises to you that he will keep promises that he will sustain you and he will hold you and he will never leave you or let you go and he will love you to the end long after everyone else has abandoned you. God will be with you. Jesus will never let you go. When the enemies are within, when you've been betrayed or hurt or when it's your own thoughts that are running wild through your head, give thanks because God has counted your tossings because he is there with you and as we wait for the return of Jesus, make thankfulness your sacrifice for that is pleasing to him. Let's pray. Jesus, may we offer before you the one sacrifice, the one offering that you want, and that is hearts of, gr- of thankfulness that you've given us so much And most of all, in this Advent season, we thank you that you sent your Son. That we might have light and life and hope. That we might have joy that makes no sense in this world. That we might have a foundation to build our lives on that can never crumble and never fracture. And beyond that, you've given us so many other things, friends and family and and provision, the very fact that we are breathing means you've given us another day to live. That is a gift. Lord, as we wait for you to return, as the days grow long, may we, may we still offer back to you our sacrifice of praise, no matter what, no matter when, no matter how, God, we thank you and we will praise you and we will worship you, for you are our God, and there is none like you in all the world pray these things in the name of our Savior Jesus. Amen.